Over the course of a thousand days between the baptism of Jesus and his crucifixion, he performed 37 miracles that we have on record in the Gospels and taught 39 parables. And those parables were ways by which Jesus was trying to boil down to its essence the immensity and intensity of a God of all the universe and all creation. Jesus needed to speak in these parables, these stories, because we are mere mortals and we would never be able to comprehend God as he is or the kingdom as it is. He needed to spoon feed us. And that's why so often he would use images that everybody could understand to try to help them to know better things that were completely beyond human comprehension, like the nature of God, his goodness, and heaven, the promised land that we were all seeking ambitiously. In terms of everyday images, the parables largely fall into categories. Those were about the wedding feast and those that were about the things of nature. The wedding feast, because Jesus wanted people to look forward to heaven, to actually think that it's a happy place that we would rather be than here. And in his time, and for centuries before and after, the most joyful event that a Jewish person would ever experience on this earth was a wedding. Their reception didn't go on for five hours. It could go on for a whole week. It was the celebration beyond all celebrations. In terms of the things of nature, he was speaking to a people that for the most part had to live off the land. They were not often able to buy the food they wanted to put on their table, so they had to grow it or barter with someone else who was growing it for them. But they could easily understand things about soil and seed and plants and trees because their very life depended on these things. And that's why the parable of the sower and the seed speaks to them. Farming was very different in Judah and Israel 2,000 years ago than it is for us in America in the Western Hemisphere in the 21st century. Even when it comes down to when the farming happens. Here in America, our farmers plant in the spring and harvest in the fall because in this part of the country it would be too cold for anything to grow when the ground is frozen in the winter. But in Judah and Israel, they planted in the fall and then they harvested in the spring. In the summer, it was just so hot. It was like a desert. Nothing was ever going to grow and there wasn't going to be a drop of rain. And yet the rains on Israel and Judah fell in the winter and that made the Jordan overflow its banks, causing tributaries and channels for irrigation to far off fields that would finally give them a hope of a harvest. But then there was also a difference in how they planted. Our farmers plow the lines into the field and then go back and drop the seed into it. In Israel and Judah with that hard ground, they just left the seed there, hoping that the moisture would help it to sift itself into the soil. Very, very complicated process, and a lot of that seed was wasted, as Jesus himself explained. Some fell on the path where it was never going to grow. Others were scorched by the sun. Still others were eaten by the birds and other animals that came for a snack. There's only a small fraction of that seed that actually took root and would grow at harvest time. All the seed was the same. It was the conditions in which they were placed that largely determined what was going to become of it. Jesus is using this parable of the sower and the seed to really define the groups of people that were following him and listening to him then, and really the kind of groups of people who may or may not be listening to him now, in terms of those who were following him then. By this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is a famous man. He was the social influencer of his time. Everybody wanted to go see Jesus. 
for very different reasons. The crowd now is so big, he had to go to a boat out in the lake, and everyone else had to gather around on the shore. But among those there listening to him were those like the apostles who left everything to follow him wherever he went because they believed that he is the Messiah, the Word made flesh, God with us. There were others who were following Jesus because they wanted something from him. They liked it better when he gave them bread and fish instead of them having to go fishing or go sift the wheat to make that bread. Or they had some sort of illness or plight or problem they were hoping Jesus was going to solve for them. They wanted something for nothing. They were going to give him anything. They wanted to be on the take. But then there was the third group that was really present anywhere Jesus was. Whatever he said and did was being closely watched and witnessed by his critics, his detractors, his rejectors. And those were the elite of Judaism at that time. The smartest, holiest, best, and brightest of all Israel and Judah, the ones who had studied the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures, had them memorized to concite them by verse. And yet they were the ones that Jesus referred to. They hear, they do not understand, they see, they do not believe. The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the scholars of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had rejected all those prophets that prepared the coming for the Christ. And Jesus knew they were going to reject him too, even to the point of putting him on that cross. They certainly took the seed, but didn't let it take root in the soul of their heart and make good things come from it. Instead, they were using that law, God's marriage vow to Israel, an instrument of salvation. They were using it as an instrument of torture, a weapon, a wedge to make people feel far from God and far from each other. With all that in mind then, Jesus defines those who will bear fruit for his kingdom, those who are willing to suffer and sacrifice to do God's will, just like he does on the cross and at the Last Supper. And then there are those who are thrown off course, where it looked like the seed was going to bear fruit, and yet somehow something went wrong somewhere along the way. And then those who stop believing and those who will never believe, no matter the case. Jesus wasn't just referring to the people of his time. He's talking to the people in the church of today and in the world in which we live. There are still those who believe and who will never doubt and who will always trust, willing to suffer and sacrifice for God's will just as Jesus did. There are those who are more casual. Maybe we have faith, some faith, but it's a fair-weather faith. If something bad happens, we blame God, we turn against God, it's his fault. Why are you doing this to me? If you are God, why are you not good? And then there's those who simply have become the modern-day Sanhedrin, Sadducees and Pharisees, detractors and rejectors, who persecute and ridicule the church, God's word, and those who believe in it in a world that is ever increasingly hostile to the gospel, where this touches us the most, and no family is immune to this, mine included, are the children and the grandchildren who no longer practice the faith. And so many parents shed many a tear and have many a gray hair over the worry, the stress, the distress, and the anxiety that they have, blaming themselves for the choices children and grandchildren have made about whether to walk the path or to just let the seed rot on the ground and be burned up by the sun. And I always challenge parents and grandparents in this situation, don't blame yourself for the choices your children make. Some parents are really scratching their heads and saying, Maybe we should have prayed the rosary every day. And then there are those that are saying, maybe we shouldn't have prayed the rosary every day and everything in between, but blaming ourselves for the choices that others are making. 
But if the parent is always to be blamed for the choices of the children, then God, you have a lot to answer for because he is the father of us all. And if he's to be blamed for our sins, he's in trouble and so are we. It's not his fault that we sin. We know what we're doing. That's what makes it wrong. That's what makes it a sin. We choose to do it anyway. And we're going to do it again and again and again. But he who is a fool for love that loves us with reckless abandonment, he who loves us even to death, he's going to continue to love us always and anyways and in always, no matter what we do, no matter what choices we make. He made us to be free. And God understood when he created us with that radical freedom that it meant that some would accept him and some would reject him. And some would do one and then the other, and maybe others are on a shifting spectrum where it's going back and forth, depending on whether good things are happening in their lives and whether their prayers are being answered. But the important thing for us, for you parents and grandparents out there, is just continue to love your kids. They'll break your heart, but it's because you love them that it hurts so much. God loves all his children, whether they believe in him or not. And even when his people stop believing in God, God never stops believing in his people. It's the blessing and burden of free will. He offers his hand in friendship. He let his son's hand be nailed to the cross to make that same friendship last, to give us the chance to be reconciled with him and with each other. We just have to continue to keep the faith, even with the last person standing, even with the last person in the pew or the last person that believes that bread and wine becomes Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is unchanging. His truths are everlasting. The church, Jesus, and God don't need to change one thing to bring one person back to the faith. We just have to change hearts, and it will be our prayers, our suffering, our sacrifice, our kindness, our invitation, our acceptance, and our willingness that we will bring the lost sheep back to the fold. So we have to keep the faith when others don't. We have to allow that same seed that was given to all to continue to be embedded in the very fiber of our being, nurtured by the body and blood of Jesus and the most blessed sacrament of the altar, so that we will continue to run our race and hope that others will get back on the course.